Welcome to the Unveiling Grace podcast, a place to experience a grace that heals. Allow this grace to take your life and your relationships to another level as it frees you from the weight of performance-based religion. Enjoy another episode as Joel Groh and Lynn Wilder share encouraging stories and candid dialogue that can help you experience a grace that heals. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Unveiling Grace podcast. I'm Joel Grote. And I'm Lynn Wilder. And we're actually in Casa Grande or... Casa Grande. (laughs) Arizona today. And we have with us Maria and Brian Perkins. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We've met a few times. We have. I haven't actually heard your story so I'm excited. <laughs> I know you left uh, performance-based religion about the same time that I did. Right, right. Yeah, so well let me let me jump in and, and kind of tell uh, my quick story that can if I start going too long you start winding <laughs> Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well uh, the short of it is I was born and raised uh, in the Mormon church third or fourth generation. I was born in Pacing, Utah, oh. uh, raised in the uh, in the church my entire life. Didn't know anything else. There were ten children in our family. I'm wow. the second o- second oldest of ten. I guess what I could tell you is that um, it was pretty typical. You know, my youth. I was I was raised. I attended church every Sunday. Went to primary, Sunday school, seminary. You, seminary. <laughs> you start yeah. progressing through the priesthood, and I was. I was kind of a rebellious um, child, even though I was uh, surrounded by LDS friends. We kind of had a wild streak, and and we did some pretty wild things. And so I have to be honest with you: in my youth, God to me was just the rules that I had to keep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's very, what he was typical. to me, and. If I disobeyed him, I didn't feel any regret. I just didn't want my parents to find out, you know. So it was kind of like that. <laughs> Sounds like parts of my childhood. <laughs> so, you know, pretty wild through high school. But when I, uh, after I graduated, I moved away. I, I moved back to Utah, and, and I have a lot of family there. So I moved off on my own. I was going to leave home. And I got there, and there was such an emptiness just being out there kind of by myself, I decided to come back home. And while I was uh, there in Utah, I had, I had decided I'd start studying about the church to see if I wanted to make a commitment or not. And, and so I ended up moving back home and I, I did become very committed. And so I was preparing to go on a mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because of my youth, I had the opportunity to visit with the general authority before I went. And at that time, they were called uh, assistants to the Quorum of the Twelve. So that's a long time ago. Okay. So I I was put on like a one-year probation. Uh, I had to go through a rest, uh, you know, this... uh, this repentance, repentance and, mm-hmm. and I had to, right. to uh, go through the whole process of anything I could think of that I'd ever done wrong. I had to go back and try and make amends for it. 
And so I worked on it for a full year. And, you know, I had stolen things as a kid. And I'd go back to the store and I'd I'd give them the money and I'd apologize and tell them, you know, I'm just trying to get my life straight. It was very interesting, the reactions. Some were very pleasant. Some were not so pleasant. They wanted to blame me for everything that was ever stolen. (laughs) But anyway, so as I prepared to go uh, on my mission, it took about a year. I was uh, just under 21 when I went. And... uh, so, but I did serve a mission in uh, the Korea Seoul mission. Oh, okay. wow. Um, Long way from home. For, you know, a full two-year mission. I came home. I met my sweetheart. Um, we were married in the Oakland Temple. Mm-hmm. We, raised, we raised four children and, and tried to raise them in the church the best way we could. Uh, it was always my feeling as a member of the church that I had to be, I had to work hard, mm-hmm. and I was taught a very good work ethic. Uh, I was involved with a business that we had grown nationwide, so we we actually cleaned movie theaters, and yeah. we cleaned them all the way up and down the West Coast, and we were in uh, Minnesota. We had a Canadian province in Edmonton, so, um, but so for me, it felt like. My success in business was my reward for being a worthy member of the church. And And that's what I felt. That would be because the Book of Mormon actually teaches teaches that. That's exactly right. That if you live the commandments, you'll be blessed both temporally and And spiritually. spiritually. That's exactly right. I believe that too. And and here was the, the whole point that I could bind God. That if I did what he said, he was bound to bless me. Mm. That right. was my mm-hmm. feelings. That was my attitude. That was my mm-hmm. belief. Now, as as if we had that kind of power. Yes, right. Uh, but so that does build that kind of pride. And I had problems uh, actually throughout my life where I would feel hypocritical. And then, um, and then I'd try and bury it. And mm-hmm. I would go through little periods where I really questioned um, my beliefs, but then someone would call me to repentance and I would, you know, I'd get back in line. Uh, they always put me in teaching positions. Um, I taught the gospel doctrine for about four and a half years just before I left. I taught seminary, um, gospel essentials. I mean, anything teaching that they could stick me in, they did. And I, and I studied a lot. I mean, a lot. Uh, and I thought I understood. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I knew the history of the church. Well, yeah, so we let's seminary. We graduated from seminary, so all the stuff you yeah, learn, we and learn. everything you learn, you just keep learning. And then, uh, more than just learning, now I'm learning in order to teach. And so I was teaching others the same thing that I had been taught. Right. right? And so, but it sounds like something changed. Yeah. So something I feel like changed. We're leading up to something here. <laughs> so what happened was, um, I had started trading options in the stock market back in the late '90s, and. Uh, we had done really, really well. We had put together a couple of trading clubs. And, of course, since I was inside this uh, religious bubble, all the people that I associated with were also inside that bubble. Yep. And so it was, you know, stake presidents and my bishop was my best friend. So we formed these trading clubs. And then we had a, a huge downturn in the market. And we lost uh, over a million dollars. Was yeah. that in, in this 08 or that was earlier than that? No, this was this was uh, late 90s. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so, so we had lost a bunch of money. 
And I, I was in a situation where I had been living so far above my means that at this point it was like there is nothing, um, um, nothing normal, nothing usual. I can't get a job at McDonald's, you know, mm. to make up where I was financially. And that was something you felt compelled to do by the religion you were in. I was because uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. You're surrounded with other people who expect a lot of you. Mm -hmm. And so you try and perform whether you feel like it or not. And, um, but anyway, so um, we lost a lot of money in the market and we lost a lot of money. Mm. Um, and so, which was one of the best things that ever happened to us, to be <laughs> honest, it really was. Mm -hmm. But so what happened was I had a, a friend, uh, not really a friend, a person I had met and he approached me and told me about an opportunity out in Atlanta, in Atlanta, Georgia, where we could buy automobiles at a, uh, at a government auction, a police auction. And I was told this story that they had confiscated over 600 cars and they were on a ship and just before they shipped them out, they confiscated them and now they had 600 vehicles that they had to sell and they didn't want to dump all of that on the Atlanta market. So they were looking for people all over the United States that had some cash that wanted to buy these cars really, really cheap. I mean, we're talking like Escalades Simplify and Mercedes. Simplify and speed and, up your story. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> so, but well, I'm, I'm just leading up I, to I why know. I got drawn into this. <laughs> so, because um, I was conned. Yeah. And, and they told me that if we put together $80,000 uh, and we could go out to Atlanta, they would load up these vehicles, 27 of them, and we would bring them on transports back out here. So, uh, but we needed $80,000 in cash. And so I put together 40,000 of my own. I had two friends, they each put in 20, my bishop and another friend. And I head off to Atlanta to buy these cars. And there were red flags along the way. This sounds too good to be true. You know, car, these kind of cars for three, $4,000. But my friend said, I went out there, I bought a Lexus. I did this before. So come with me and I'll show you how to do this. And mm. So we were going to go do this really big thing. And I felt like it would be a way for me to recover a bunch of the money that I had lost in our right. trading cup Surely for these God other would people. Want you to be able to do that. Exactly. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And can so, I, can I pause you there? Cause I've heard similar stories and I don't want to assume, but was there also any sense of praying and looking for a spiritual confirmation something inside that where you you kind of feel like okay you've kind of got the go-ahead from god on this one i mean your bishop's involved that right. has to be a positive right. thing after all he's a spiritual right. leader um and he's willing to go along with it right so i just wondering was that a part of the what convinced I, I, you i even have to be honest with you it wasn't okay. what what the problem was is that the red flags would come up and i felt like that was the spirit telling me no, mm, not the other yeah. way around. It was okay. telling me no, you shouldn't go. And I would, but I, so I would ask more questions and they would give me a little bit more and a little bit more and they kept leading me into this thing. So long story short, I end up out at Atlanta, Georgia with uh, $80,000 in cash. I mean cash, Ooh. bills. Yeah. And, and the reason they said I had to do that was this was going to be an auction. I can't just write a check and leave. They wouldn't let me take the cars and come home and all that. So I needed cash. Well, oh so it, it was a little bit strange and it was hard getting all of that cash out of the bank. It's surprising how hard it is to put that much cash together. But anyway, I got it within about four or five days and I head off to Atlanta, Georgia with this friend. And so we get there early in the afternoon. 
and and the people we were supposed to meet to go to the auction, uh, they got delayed, had to go pick up his wife from work, and car wasn't working, and it gets later and later, and pretty soon it's late evening, but they finally show up, and um, we're going to go out to the loading dock where all these cars are. So my friend is in the in the back seat, and one of the people from the auction. Now I got to tell you, these guys didn't look like they were from any auction. And yeah. and I and I was feeling like there was something wrong here mm -hmm. with this whole deal. And I started thinking, you know, these aren't cars from a government auction. These are stolen cars. But now I'm feeling uncomfortable because there's another car following us. I'm in a car with a person in the passenger seat. I'm driving two people in the back. So we get to the loading dock, and as soon as we pull in where the cars are supposed to be, uh, he grabs me by the collar and pulls me back, and I hear click, and I've got a gun at the side of my head. Oh, okay, now wait a minute. The friend that got you into this, was he in your performance-based religion? Yes. Okay. Yes, he wow. was. Which is why the trust factor, even exactly. despite the red flags. Right, right, right. And so it felt real. It felt like... I was going out there to get cars, and I was going to correct a financial problem I had. Right. But, oh. um, but instead, I end up there with a gun at the back of my head. And I, I, so I just kind of freeze, and they get my friend out of the back and take him off someplace else. And they come, and then someone gets out of the back and comes around, opens my front door, and, and has a, another gun. They get me out of the car. They duct tape my arms behind my back, and they have me kneel down. And they put the gun at the back of my head. And I just started, I just started uh, thinking to myself, wondering to myself, what is it going to feel like when he shoots me? They can't let me live. I've seen them. They've got $80,000 of my money. They're going to kill me. I just started praying. Heavenly Father, don't let this man kill my wife's husband. Don't let this man kill my parents' son. Don't let this man kill my children's father. And I just started wondering, when he pulls the trigger, am I going to feel it? Will it just be numb? Is it going to hurt? And then after that, where am I going to be? Mm. Am I going to be with Heavenly Father, am I going to be in paradise? You know, all my religion, I'm starting to try and figure, where am I going to be? Uh. But with all my religion, I realized I haven't climbed far enough up the ladder to be any place up there. I'm, I, I just started thinking, I'm not ready to meet Heavenly Father mm. because I am not worthy. Wow. But so I... Truer words, never thought. So huh? I just... So I just, um, I just. I mean, you had not been committing any grievous, like you weren't being unfaithful, or there no, was nothing like that. No. But you knew you had not listened to the spirit. I well, when, and that was one of the big the things. Flag. I think I'd had this warning of the spirit, and I and I ignored it. What happens when we deny the Holy Spirit? He leaves you. <laughs> That's right? exactly right. Yeah. In, so in here I am. Here I am. By myself, with no spirit around me, right? Because the spirit, whenever you put your, whenever you put yourself in a bad place, the spirit is not going to be there anymore, mm. right? So he wasn't there, 
but <laughs> but I was scared because I was about to die. I knew I was going to die, and so I, I'm I'm just preparing for that. And they grab me by the arms, they pick me up, they take me over by the loading dock, and they duct tape my legs. So much I I couldn't move, and I'm laying on my stomach. And this guy, um, through the conversations, his name was Dirty. Okay. He kneels on my back, and he puts the gun under my chin. And then he puts it against my head and behind my ear. And, on, you know, it's like he's trying to figure out where to pull the trigger. And so I just started praying to myself quietly. You know, Heavenly Father, don't let this man kill me. Mm-hmm. And in the loudest voice of the spirit, mm-hmm. that spirit that I've been listening to my whole life, I hear, you put yourself here. And if this man chooses to kill you, I cannot interfere. He has his free agency. I heard those words as loud as day. And would that be the spirit you know now? No. I pushed all of that aside in my mind, and I just started praying again. Heavenly Father, don't let this man kill me. And this guy, gold tooth, chain, big gun, leans down and he whispers in my ear tonight i bless you with your life <gasps> he stood up and he walked away and he gets over by his friends and it's like he's in a daze and he's just kind of saying hey man what are we doing we have to blow these guys away and his friend said no we've been here too long we need to get out of here and so they left so that's that's the main part of that story. All I can tell you is that at that point, I realized I wasn't even close to ready to meet God. And I was broken. And I didn't know mm-hmm. why I was broken. But I had this, it, it was, it was um, the violation. It was the... Just the impact of what I realized about myself, mm. right. right? That I was a sinner. Mm-hmm. That I had a life of sin. That sins of commission and sins of omission. I didn't do my home teaching. I, we didn't say our family prayers every night, you know. Mm-hmm. Th- those types of things uh, kept bothering me the whole time. I went for about six and a half, seven years just totally broken. After that. And after that, this is after that, for about seven years after that incident, uh, I could not go back to church. Because you felt unworthy. I felt totally unworthy. Mm. I had a stake president while I was teaching. The Gospel Doctrine class came up to me and he said, I love your teaching, you know, just wonderful, but I'd like you to do one thing. I want you to bear your testimony every Sunday about the importance of attending the temple. So, okay, well, I'll do that. But that wasn't really my testimony. <laughs> he was telling me what my testimony should be. Had you been to the temple? Oh, yeah. Okay. We were married in the temple in Oakland, sealed. I yeah, we served. Married. I mean, we had been to the temple a lot. We used yeah. to do the temple hopping thing. It was, you know, the Mormon thing to do if you're traveling, right? right? Exactly. So, so you weren't going to church after that, though, But right? I stopped going to church, and then 
every time I would go to church for, I, I, I kept but thinking I, I need to get back. And she was active the whole time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, He'd say, I feel like a hypocrite. And I'm thinking, well, if you feel like a hypocrite, why, why don't you just go to church? Why don't you, church why don't you make it right? <laughs> and I would try and tell people, I don't know. There is something broken inside of me. Oh. And I cannot fix it. Oh. And going to church doesn't fix it. Oh. Right. Yes. It makes it worse. Yes. And because every time I'd go to church, they would encourage me to, to take a teaching position again. Why don't you teach the gospel essentials class? Or, you know, and, and so, and then I'd, I, I, this brokenness would just drive me away again. Mm-hmm. So that went on for about seven years. And then one day, my daughter asked me a question, and she just said, Daddy, how many wives did Joseph Smith have? Mm. I knew the answer. I was taught this my entire life. Joseph Smith had one wife. Mm. His wife in her diary says that she was his only wife. Mm. But Brigham Young introduced polygamy is what I was taught my whole right. life. Right. Right. And all the bad stuff, right? Yeah. Like and racism. Yeah. But Joseph Smith only had, and so the only people that were sealed to Joseph was after he passed. And, you know, people, widows would seal themselves to him. And, right. you know, that's what I had heard. So she said, and, and you love when your adult daughter finally comes and asks your, your opinion about something, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> because it's normally, for, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but she said, no, I don't think that's right. I said, well, I know that's right. I've taught this my whole life. I, you know, I know Joseph church Smith history. Had one wife. He right? did. That's right. what I've been taught. That's what I have taught. That's what all the movies show. <laughs> that's what everyone, <laughs> yes. So she said, no, I, I don't think that's right. I said, well, I can prove it to you. So I go into my office and looking around. So I get on the computer and I make a mistake. I typed in Wives of Joseph Smith and I see this list. So I go through the whole process of of trying to confirm everything that I was now learning. What this did, because I kind of pierced the bubble a little bit by going to the internet. Yeah. And doing a little bit of research. And right. I discovered that this wasn't anti-Mormon information. This is history. Just real documented history. That's what it is. True. And so what that led me to was that I found out there was something wrong with that. That led me to questioning what temple marriage was all about. That led me to Well, when you Masonic first started your search, you were going to just Mormon approved Sites yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to Mormon approved sites to try, and I found that there's tons of information right there in front of everybody. Mm. If you, if you can right. see it in the Journal of Discourses right. and the history of the church, yes. and so words from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, so for me, what I what I had felt for seven and a half years is the church was absolutely true. I wasn't. I yeah. couldn't. I couldn't climb that ladder of worthiness to the point that I would have this wonderful woman in the next life mm. as my wife. And so oh. so that's pressing on me, but at the same time I got to wake up every morning and with the stuff I'd started researching 
and verifying, and then that led me outside the bubble, and uh, and then I found out it's not just that there was something wrong with some things. There was something wrong with everything. If the foundation is sand, it can't support the gospel of Jesus. He would Christ. get really it agitated. It can only be founded on a rock, right? When right. I'd walk in his office, he'd get really agitated, and I'm like, well, you know, excuse me, I'd, and I'd leave. I didn't want her to know. I was reading anti-Mormon stuff. Point, at that point, you're trying to still protect the Mormon family. Yes, you know, as a as a leader, as a leader of your home, a priesthood holder, it's my job to lead my family to the celestial kingdom. And what I always felt was that even though I knew my sin, my weaknesses, my my uh, frailness as a human being, I always felt like I could f- uh, rely on the church to be my compass, my spiritual compass, to right. lead my family. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that felt like it was gone. because Not because the church wasn't true, but because I was having a, a problem. Yeah, and that is an amazing place to stop because we're almost out of time, which means we have to have a part two. So can you guys do a part two? And Because we're still not into turning the corner fully. I mean, you're starting to feel the full weight of the shame of a performance-based religious system. Even you may not have known that's what it was, but God's using that to put pressure on you. You're finding out, like you say, you've gone outside of the bubble now. And so when we come back, we need to hear the rest of the story. I'd love to hear you say that, Brian, because my priesthood, once priesthood holding husband, often says the same thing. He was the last one to leave Mormonism and come to Christ in our family. He says, because in DNC 132, Joseph Smith said he could go to hell and pull Emma out, that he believed as long as he was strong in the church that he literally could go to hell and pull his family out. He was sealed to them. Brian, thank you so much for being here, Maria. It's looking looking forward to part two. That's all I can say. So (laughs) thanks. It's been a pleasure um, because the good part is, is yet to come, is but yet to what come. an amazing story. <laughs> well, just God's hand on your life is amazing. So, yeah, as always, you just never know what's going to happen. I know. <laughs> so, until next time, we'll look forward to you guys joining us then. So, Brian, Maria, Lynn, thanks so much. Thank Grace you. Grace and Thank peace. You. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unveiling Grace podcast. Join us next time for another conversation devoted to helping your life and relationships flourish. As always, you can find show notes, program transcripts, and leave us your comments and questions at unveilinggracepodcast.com. For a limited time, we are offering the Wilder's book, Seven Reasons We Left Mormonism, for a donation of any amount. Go to unveilinggracepodcast.com and click on the free book button to request yours. We greatly appreciate your support for the Unveiling Grace podcast, where you can experience a grace that heals.